Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in the ETF business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Heather Bell. Hi, Heather. Hiya. And today we are joined by Samara Cohen, Managing Director and Co-Head of iShares Markets and Investments to talk about ETF development, product quality, all that good stuff. Thanks for joining us, Samara. Thank you so much for having me. So I think we can start um, with the very meaty uh, concept that BlackRock defines the team you run, iShares Markets and Investments, as the quote-unquote engine of the firm's ETF and index business. Tell us, what does that mean to, to be the engine for the market's largest ETF issuer? Well, it means that we are essentially as the manufacturing plant uh, for for BlackRock's ETFs. Uh, specifically, what we what we really come into work every day to do is to deliver, you know, as you said in the intro, investment integrity and market quality across all of our products. And that begins in the design studio when we want to launch a new ETF and we have to build out the operating model all the way through supporting that product in the market, managing the portfolio, ensuring that creation and redemptions run smoothly, working to ensure deep secondary market liquidity. And of course, you know, leading in the, in the industry uh, to, to develop uh, standards and importantly, and you're a big part of this too, provide education on this very fast growing segment of the financial markets. So we really are, we, and a lot of our team considers themselves engineers, portfolio engineers, product engineers, market engineers, um, because we take the, the development and the running of our product as, as something uh, uh, that, that requires that sort of depth of operational expertise in a place that we really hope to differentiate ourselves for clients. So does, does that... Does that mean every ETF that iShares or BlackRock launches starts in your part of the company? Like the ideas farm is there, the the whole development, everything happens there? Well, the idea farm really, of course, starts with all of our client-facing teams and our clients. I mean, what our innovation teams do is they seek to figure out what is uh, what will be what it, what has a value proposition in a client's portfolio? And the even harder question is what is going to have the highest value proposition in a client's portfolio in two years, five years from now? Because we want to bring those ETFs to market and start nurturing them and building them today. So our innovation teams will have lots of different ideas and they will bring them to us so that we can iterate on. How do we design this? Will this work? Is an ETF the best wrapper to bring this particular outcome to a client? Um, and then we build it out from there. Actually, I had a question. Building on that, what what do you see as the most interesting uh, fund that you've worked on in recent years in bringing to market? For me this year, uh, our ability to launch a whole suite of sustainable ETFs and particularly uh, sustainable ETFs in the fixed income market um, has been one of the most exciting, I think, because this is an area where 
investors really want to commit and where we're starting to see uh, a very important value proposition and a new part of, of thinking about fixed income. Well, on, on that vein, you know, when we think about 2020 and, you know, all the craziness that has happened this year bet- between pandemic, market volatility, uh, and a whole new group of ETF investors, ETF traders coming into the market. Um, when it comes to product development, when it comes to product quality or anything ETF related, what really stands out to you as important milestones for the industry this year? 2020 has been an epic year um, in really seeing the importance of ETFs in financial markets today. And a big part of that was during the pandemic, but frankly, um, it was unfolding before the pandemic and, and continues to unfold today, you know, as we start to see, hopefully there is a, there is a vaccine in sight. So 2020 feels like a, a key turning point um, in the last decade of development uh, of ETFs. But a lot of that was really on, on full display given the volatility around COVID. Um, and specifically during the during the most volatile market periods, so February, March, April, ETF trading um, spiked significantly from where it had been on average, maybe 25% of U.S. daily volumes. It went up almost as high as 40%, showing you that in an environment of um, uncertainty and market volatility, ETFs offer uh, convenience, access, and critically important in that period, transparency. And so investors trade them more in times of volatility. And that was um, even more uh, visible with fixed income ETFs because there was so much uncertainty um, and, and again, lack of visibility in, in the bond market to bond pricing. But I think it's important to realize because we have talked so much about bond market volatility and fixed income ETFs over COVID that this was unfolding before. And I'll give you an example, which is if you remember, it feels like a lifetime ago, but at the beginning of 2020, the markets in China were closed um, over the, the new year for nine consecutive days. But China ETFs like CNYA were a place that investors could look to see the pricing of assets and really predicted where those markets would reopen um, when they did. And even more recently, like in the middle of November, I think it was November 9th when we got the news, the the first piece of headline news, which was Pfizer's about their vaccine, which came out um, early before the US markets opened, that sent Russell 2000 in particular rallying um, such that futures actually went into a limit upstate at 7%. And there was no visibility on where ETFs uh, would, where uh, Russell 2000 stocks would open into the U.S. open, except through an ETF, IWM, which really correctly predicted and traded about five times its usual pre-market volume into the 9.30 a.m. U.S. open. People turned to IWM to predict predict what was ultimately uh, about an 8.3% up open for the Russell 2000. So the utility of ETFs in really improving um, visibility to pricing in the markets, there's been so many examples of it this year. And uh, each of those I think has been really critical milestones. 
and, and milestones for the industry really to, to celebrate given the huge amount of work that has gone into building out this ecosystem. And but like making sense of this utility as as you put it, or you know, really understanding what we're looking at as this industry grows and more product comes to market. Uh, I guess an important part of it is that we're all playing with the same cards, right? So there's industry standards that are important, like or we're all using the same metrics. Um, and I know your team is, is doing a lot of work on that front. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the type of metrics that are important to focus on and the important to standardize these metrics as we evaluate ETFs and how they behave? Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. And I think, again, as the industry, um, well, not just the industry, as the world has gotten more educated um, and interested and engaged in ETFs, it's really important for people to understand the difference between ETFs and for the industry to be clear um, about uh, uh, what measures uh, to look at in terms of comparing ETFs and, and to know what's important to you. For us, we've spent a lot of time this year in, in thinking about how we deliver and how we measure market quality in ETFs. Hmm. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that, um, spanning from you know what we think of as table stakes. It's kind of pass-fail to track the index. But it's critically important. If you buy an ETF um, that is supposed to deliver, I was talking about Russell 2000 before, Russell 2000 uh, before you want to get Russell 2000 returns um, uh, in your ETF. But ETF quality goes well beyond tracking. It's secondary market liquidity. It's costs to trade, which might be the cost, um, looking at what it costs to trade one ETF versus another, but it also could be what it costs to trade an ETF versus some other market access vehicle like a bond. One of the things we saw over COVID is that transaction costs for ETFs were much tighter um, than they were for those underlying bonds. So transaction costs is another measure of market quality. Premium discount behavior is a third overall primary market efficiency, which informs premium discount behavior. It's how well the fund manages creations and redemptions, particularly in high volume periods. Um, and, you know, and of course, as I mentioned, tracking, those things come together to create what, what we see as a pretty holistic measure of, of ETF quality. Um, now, I will say, the other thing, moving kind of, uh, you know, zooming out a little bit from what was a pretty micro answer to your question, we think it's pretty important for the industry to assess what we consider an ETF at this point. Um, we've really started to use ETFs as a catch-all term for anything that trades on an exchange, but an exchange-traded thing is not necessarily an exchange-traded fund. Um, and I think that's really important to pay attention, particularly in this 2020 environment, which has been kind of a perfect storm for retail engagement in the stock market. People are at home, trading platforms are off there in you know, commission-free trading. So there has been a real, one of the biggest market structure stories of 2020 is increased retail trading. And within ETFs, you see much more retail participation in levered and inverse products than you do in, in more vanilla products. And that's an area that we think, and, and we have been pretty public on, 
we think the industry should coalesce around clearer labels because there have been some acute moments this year where people were pretty surprised that their three times levered or three times inverse levered product performed with such acute price volatility, but really that's what those um, instruments are structured to do. And we don't think that investors um, really think about those as e ETFs, even though as an industry, we've gotten a little bit sloppy in calling everything an ETF. So a more macro answer to that question about standards is really like, let's be clear about, about labels so that we can educate investors, particularly with this greater involvement by retail on, on what is an ETF. Yeah, it's interesting because BlackRock has been a big, uh, a big push, um, making a big push, if you will, on this front of labeling. Uh, you guys just this past week uh, relabeled. You're separating, you know, active versus passive ETFs with a BlackRock versus iShares label. So just this effort to have a very, very precise nomenclature uh, is, is an interesting push in terms of education, which actually takes me back to something you said earlier when we first started about where ideas for new ETFs come from. And, you know, it goes back to clients. And, and I've heard this before, the, the concept of product development anchored on, you know, client, client-centric product development. That's where it always starts, where the client has a need and that's what triggers development of ETF. On the same, on the other side, there's this idea of the education gap or perhaps the confusion or new people coming to the ETF space. And we have such a big education hurdle here. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting to me, um, not conflict, but just how, you know, the customer knows best. The client is going to be the source of the idea of where product development can go. But at the same time, we're still educating the client on what ETFs are, how they work, and trying to make sure they understand all the metrics. It's, it's an interesting, uh, you know, conflict there. Yeah, I think um, I think it's I think it's a challenge, and I think it's a I think it's a challenge that the industry should come together around because we all believe that ETFs have a huge value to offer investors and and to offer the markets overall. Um, but as products continue to proliferate and offer different types of outcomes, making sure that it doesn't become too much of a, a tower of Babel, so to speak, with, if you think about it, if every ETF issuer uses their own language mm -hmm. um, to talk about basic concepts with their ETFs, it, it defeats the overall value, the, the overall powerful value proposition that the industry has. And to your point about and index. I mean, the SEC really helped, in, in our opinion, bring the industry forward by, by creating their ETF role that offers a lot more flexibility for issuers to bring funds to market, including active strategies. But for example, when I listed what I think were those you know, micro uh, important measures of market quality, in an active strategy, you would replace tracking the index with delivering outperformance versus an index. Mm -hmm. And an investor needs to know, like, what, what are they looking for from this ETF? Which of these metrics are the most important to them? Um, and if they are looking for, uh, uh, of course, uh, alpha or a different like an outperformance versus the index return, 
what are they willing to pay for that alpha? And that feeds back into their, into their overall total cost of ownership and how they compare that ETF to others they might buy. But I think it's in everybody's best interest. I don't think that it has to be a, a you know, massively uh, complicated language, but there are certain uh, places where the industry can, can help by using the same terms. Yeah, to to turn it a little bit on a personal note, uh, before uh, we got together today, Heather and I were talking about uh, your background as we were reading your bio, and it was just fascinating to see that you actually have a background in theater arts. So we're just really curious here how you connect those dots from an interest, uh, you know, in life on stage and... uh, a love for ETFs, uh, how, you know, walk us through the the parallels here. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I guess if you look on paper, it seems like these things have nothing to do with each other. But, uh, but if you're me, uh, they, they actually have have everything to do with each other. So, um, so I'll give you, I'll give you the short answer, but it really begins with the fact that uh, it was never life on stage for me. My theater background wasn't about performing. It was about production, Mm. putting together really complex uh, theater productions. It's not how it started when I was when I was really young. uh, My family, my teachers realized that I could sing. And so they started, you know, put like I would try out for shows and I would be in musical theater productions. Um, But I quickly learned, even though on stage is what got me into it, it's not what I loved. I loved and I wasn't a great actor and I didn't really love being on stage, but I loved the complexity of the the lights and the orchestra and how do you make everything come together and work at the same time. Um, and, and I was also a math person. So, so later in my life, I, I took math classes and economics classes and developed a deep interest in markets. And the first time I walked onto a trading floor, I was like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Because just as a person, I, I, I operate well in that sort of like multitasking, um, uh, very high energy environment that is a trading floor. It's very much like putting on a show, whether you're a director or stage manager or set designer, those were all the different types of things I tried when I was, uh, when I was doing internships and, and stuff in theater. And then now in a, uh, in a global ETF business, we are managing portfolios in markets around the world in different time zones and multiple asset classes across all of these different trading venues um, for a very varied group of clients. So like for me, I have found the job that, that you know suits me best and it is very much kind of tapping into the same part of me that realized I loved you know, directing big, complicated musical theater shows. But but yeah, I get that on paper. These things seem totally disconnected. It all comes down to a love of the process, right? You just love the process. Yes, I love the process. The more complicated, you know, the, the, the bigger the challenge, the better, especially when you have like the the reward of, as we were talking about earlier, being able to deliver something to people that they couldn't get before. I mean, for me, after, uh, I mean, I've been in the markets for over 25 years. And the thing that makes me want to come to work every day is that we are breaking new ground that helps more and more people 
develop their own their own financial well-being and come into the markets and participate in in investments that that weren't available uh, to to be part of a, a an individual an individual investor's portfolio before. So so that's really motivating and and rewarding and 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 yeah, like you said, I think for somebody. Um, it can be those those measures of market quality that we talk about. Those don't just happen, mm-hmm. and ETFs do differentiate one run from the other based on um, how well an issuer and an ecosystem. Because of course, let's remember, like there's something you know again to use the theater analogy, kind of orchestral about making all of the different parts work that have to for an ETF. It's the issuer, it's the portfolio managers, but it's also the equity pipes, the stock exchanges, the authorized participants. Um, And we do a lot of work engaging with those external ecosystem participants. So they all come together to create the highest functioning ETFs. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really exciting work. Are your college friends surprised that you went into the field that you went into? Because I was an English literature major, and apparently it's a great source of shock to them that I work in the, you know, field of ETF journalism. Uh, That's awesome. I love that. And yes, well, I guess it depends on which college friends. I had two sets of college friends because I got a dual degree. Because uh, honestly, to get my parents a little bit comfortable with the fact that I was spending all of my summers working these theater internships, and because I was a math person, I did a Bachelor of Science in Economics, which they made them feel like I had a backup plan with this theater thing. <laughs> and then I got a BA in theater arts, but I spent all of my extracurricular in theater. So any of my theater major friends or anybody who did, you know, I was the president of student theater groups, like anybody who knew me through that, they were totally shocked um, that I ended up pursuing this um, uh, uh, this path and, and this career. And, and I still find myself, they say, so, you know, when are you going to switch and go back to theater? <laughs> and the funny thing, I, I think what they don't realize is that, like, my parents thought the finance thing was a safety net, but it, it, it is something that I love. And it very much, like I was saying before, like, and I'm sure you see this too with your journalism major, um, that you bring all of those things that make you like writing and communicating in a way that, that resonated with your audience. It's all of those things that I loved doing in, in, in theater and bringing together complexity and, and lots of different constituents and, and making everything work in the right place at the right time. Like I get to do that in, in this job, but, but unless they give me a chance to explain it, yeah, they're pretty surprised. <laughs> so my, my last thought is before we wrap up here is just, you know, as we, as we look 10 years down the road and we're going to look back at 2020 as the year when, I guess the orchestra got brand new music and it got bumpy there for a while. Um, from, from where you sit in the ETF world, um, what will you take from this year? What was the most challenging aspect to your job this year or the most memorable, perhaps most fulfilling or the worst? Uh, what are you going to remember 2020 for? Well, look, I think we'll all remember 2020 um, for the the pandemic. And and frankly, hopefully our memories of the pandemic are confined to 2020. (laughs) um, And and we move out of this uh, this early in 21. But I think on a look on a personal note, I think for me, well, I guess a personal professional note, 
for me, the best day of 2020 was, was, um, it was, I can tell you, it was November 4th because it was the day after the presidential election, which is not why it was the best day. It was the best day because that was promotion day at BlackRock. And I have these distinct memories. Promotion day at BlackRock is when we can tell um, successfully promoted candidates all the way from associates through managing director that they were successfully promoted and, and everybody at the firm makes calls to congratulate people starting with their managers. And in a year like this, knowing what people went through, whether you know it's you know somebody was dealing with their children at home and trying to do homeschooling, or they were, you know, somebody who lived by themselves and they were lonely and and you know and, and having to deal with that, all of the different things people have dealt with on a personal note combined with the intensity of our markets um, and, and the financial world to be able to celebrate people's accomplishments in a year like this and to be able to say to people that morning, look, I don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be because, of course, the morning of November 4th, we weren't sure. But I do know today is the day I get to congratulate you on what you did this year. So that's at the more personal level. And, and I think at the industry, more macro level, I think this is the year where given the, the volatility uh, in the markets um, and the uncertainty around the markets, the fact that ETFs um, have truly matured into a part of markets that make them stronger and safer and more efficient is very clear. The markets are better with ETFs in them than they were without ETFs for the reasons we talked about before. Access, transparency, um, convenience, the, the you know, ability for a broader group of people to trade. And that's the result of huge work by so many people across our industry over the you know over 25 years that, that ETFs have been around, but really over the past post-crisis decade of market improvement, we've really seen how that has played out um, in, in the presence and utility of ETFs. And I think that is, this is a turning point for the industry that we will look back on um, and remember uh, uh, 2024. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Well, we will have to leave it at that. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Samara. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. For more information and for previous episodes of our podcast, check out ETF.com. If you're looking for more information on women in ETFs, please check out womeninetfs.com, all one word. And if you'd like to send us a comment, question, or suggestion, please email us at etfworkinglunch at etf.com. On behalf of Heather Bell and myself and the entire etf.com team, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.